Hi, I'm Dr. Tej Gita, GHD's global leader, Future Energy, and host of a Clarion Call, a podcast series bringing together leading subject matter experts from around the world to explore opportunities to de-risk the energy transition. Hello, and welcome to a Clarion Call, a GHD Future Energy podcast series. I'm joined today by Professor Chris Gregg, Senior Research Scientist in the Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment at Princeton University, and Richard Fechner, Global Executive General Manager for GHD Advisory. Really thank you both for joining us today. In this episode, we're discussing the importance of carefully balancing supply chains and resource to minimize the social, economic, and environmental impacts of the energy transition. Chris, you conceived the Rapid Switch Initiative, a major international interdisciplinary research effort that aims to accelerate progress on climate change by identifying and resolving the critical bottlenecks that slow our progress towards deep decarbonization. I'm really interested in that background and specifically in your opinions on the bottlenecks in our supply chains and resources. In your view, What are some of the biggest challenges around bottlenecks in supply chain and resources that are impacting the transition to net zero? Well, firstly, Taj, it's a pleasure to be able to join this podcast. And this is a topic that's pretty dear to my heart. I actually think there are a very vast array of bottlenecks that will inevitably act periodically to slow and potentially stall different parts of the transition at different times of the transition. And where I start is with the the need for a clear-eyed view about the astonishing speed, scale and complexity of all the interdependent infrastructure that needs to be developed, built and brought online if we're actually to reach mid-century net zero targets. We simply don't have a precedent for this kind of rapid scale of deployment. And so I think that's a good starting point. Secondly, this infrastructure, a lot of it is very long-lived and has long development lead times. So to pull this off, we need to ensure that all the necessary decisions and capital investments are made sufficiently in advance to ensure that every piece of the puzzle comes together just in time. So that's actually going to take A, a meticulous plan, B, a huge amount of visibility across independent sectors and up and down supply chains, and see just about perfect foresight if we're to act in time. And then, of course, we need to execute flawlessly. And I don't see anyone with that kind of detailed plan or that kind of visibility and foresight. And as for flawless execution, that might be everybody's aspiration, but we all know that it's not a reality. So in my view, from time to time, we will inevitably experience tightness and at times critical tightness. And we can start with something like talent. I mean, most major economies today are at near full employment. Your firm, for example, is in a monumental battle uh, with its competitors and with its clients at times for good quality people. And so, as you know, when good quality people become constrained, the cost goes up and more and more A, B and C teams start to appear at the work front. And that can't be good for the transition. We could look at equipment supplies everything from wind turbine components, solar cells, batteries, electrolyzers, and more. And these are already extremely tight, right? We're starting behind the curve on many. And if we go further up the value chain, we can run into things like critical minerals, 
but even materials that we don't consider critical, like specialty steels, and even steel supplies generally, could become constrained at some point. So this really is an enormous challenge, but I think we also have to be careful that our efforts to overcome bottlenecks, we don't compromise on other values. So we could speed up the opening of new mines in frontier territories, processing facilities in places with lesser regulatory challenges, but we have to make sure we're not going to leave behind an environmental, social or human rights legacy that we regret. And so we need to resist the temptation to lock ourselves also into geopolitically unstable trade relationships or frankly, nationalistic, opportunistic onshoring strategies because these will have unintended consequences as well. We have a huge challenge. It's inevitable that some of these are going to bite, but we have to be very careful in how we design the solutions to them. That is a, a lot of substantial challenges, Chris. I mean, that just paints out how how difficult the overall energy transition could be just from looking at this aspect alone. Richard, thinking about some of the challenges that Chris just touched on so eloquently, how are supply chain issues intertwined with risk, the perception of risk, and ultimately financing? Well, thanks, Tej. It's a great pleasure to be here on this call and the podcast and have a chance to chat through these critical issues with you and Chris. The first thing I'll, I'll reflect upon is that energy transition is global. And while governments and communities and companies may think of their local scenarios and local peace, so much of the supply chain has to be considered on a global scale. And that includes resources as well as human resources. People are a key part of the supply chain in making the transition. And an example of the consideration that's starting to be taken needs to be more fully understood is a report that's come out this month in Australia by the federal government. Jobs and Skills Australia has released a report um, titled Workforce Needs for a Net Zero Economy. It really highlights in that piece something that's been lacking, and that's the, the training at universities and technical and further edu education organisations to start working on those needs. And that's coming from an interface of what, what is policy dictating, but really understanding what employer groups are seeing as their challenges coming forward. That's critically important in the transition because one of the things that's limiting the transition is fear. And we see communities who may be reliant on old energy and older industries concerned about the retraining, their jobs and their community prosperity. So the piece about the transition of people and their prosperity as we make energy transition is a critical piece in, in tying this together. Um, and that leads into thinking about the just transition as well. Um, in countries such as Canada and Australia, um, a lot of the land that might be important to future energy investment and considerations is linked to rural communities and Indigenous landowners. So the longer term considerations about sustainable communities is really important in that piece. And that ties future energy and the energy transition into other topics such as water, and social sustainability. Um, we're also seeing a need for policy and regulation to stimulate that change. And that's very much about increased collaboration between the public sector, private investment, and driving that through environmental and business sustainability lenses. And the real challenge here is how do we encourage the private sector to act early? And that's often in times 
with shorter term horizons in uh, political tenure. So certainly an investment and that the issues there comes from certainly that policy. And while the policy can take times, there's lots that governments must do in acting more decisively to enable the supply chain, the people, the materials, the minerals, the manufacturing skills to be ready so we can achieve the net zero mid-century without harnessing both government and private sector alignment, then we're going to be uh, at a very difficult point of bringing those elements together and matching financing of projects and initiatives with the needs to make that transition real. So thanks, Tej. Thank you very much, Richard. Just a a quick follow-up for you. That alignment between government and private sector how, how would you gauge that in terms of how that's working across the world right now? Is that very much work in progress? Are there places where you've seen that actually done very well? I think there's areas where it's working okay, but I think there's lessons we can learn perhaps from where there's been disappointment or failure. I think the, uh, you know, there's, it's been deemed a bit of a UK government market failure process with their recent view of uh, offshore wind procurement and all the bids failed to hit the government strike price. And I think there's a piece there that the government didn't understand in the changing circumstances in the market, and they set the subsidy rate too low in the most recent auctions for licences, and that failed to attract a single bidder. So, you know, whether it's a policy blunder or, or uh, you know, anything else, but it has led to delaying what is probably five gigawatts of energy on uh, wind energy coming online, and that's going to be... Uh, a hit to consumers um, of higher bills in coming years. So I think the piece of that uh, that matching, that sounding between government and driving policy and in commercial procurement will really make uh, those failures um, less frequent and give a lot more comfort to uh, to the finance dollars to, to uh, do the heavy lifting, I guess, uh, Tej, that uh, the private sector needs to do in this journey. Yeah, thank you very much for that very tangible example, Richard. I think we we can learn a lot from examples like that to improve into the future. I think uh, this definitely is a work in progress, aligning governments and, and private sectors so that we're on the same journey. Chris, I think very clearly we have a good gauge on what I would call some fairly daunting challenges affecting supply chain and resources. But on a more positive note, maybe we can turn our conversation to addressing them. How, in your view, can we build a more resilient supply chain for the energy transition? You know, well, I think the nature of my last answer would suggest that I don't see a magic bullet, but uh, we could surely do better. And uh, I think Richard just hit on a point that I'll start with, and that is that elected governments need to lift themselves out of their short-term myopic thinking and really think strategically and, and much longer term And of course, that's going to be challenging given the political divides on climate in many countries and their general unwillingness to compromise. So four-year political horizons aren't helpful when we're talking about development lead times that are well over a decade and in some cases two, for example, with mining and transmission. And on some supply chains where there really is a lack of visibility because they're in different parts of the world and so forth. But even uh, in education and training, that whole ecosystem for talent, that is really long lead, right, to build it up. If you think about the energy transition, our estimates are just on the supply side, the you know, energy supply and industrial decarbonisation infrastructure, 
we're talking about needing a threefold expansion uh, in the pipeline of engineers and trades, among other skills. This short-termism is a huge challenge. But the second thing on my wish, wish list, which goes to the sort of question you asked uh, Richard, is really around greater transparency and collaboration within the private sector, both between government and the private sector, but within the private sector. And as I said previously, we can't count on there being some government central planning department with the foresight and visibility, let alone the authority that's going to be needed to coordinate all these moving pieces in the transition. But the private sector could help within the limits of current antitrust regulations. So in the interests of accelerating our efforts on climate, perhaps we need a rethink on those kind of regulations, but also I think companies themselves would need to prioritise cooperation on climate above the pursuit of competitive advantage through sharing of information and knowledge. And that probably goes all the way to universities and even communities and, and other uh, stakeholders. Again, easier said than done, as I'm sure you'll agree, but I think it is really going to take that kind of much greater level of transparency, much greater level of collaboration, and just beginning to prioritise collaboration in the name of addressing climate change over and above some of the usual competitive tensions that exist you know, in every industry. Wonderful answer, Chris. I'm just curious. Do you think that greater collaboration amongst the private sector participants can actually help generate greater long-term vision at the governmental level? If they saw private sector coming together a little bit more, would that help overcome the short-termism, as you called it? I think it would, but I think there's another element to it. I think greater transparency and more collaboration and more companies singing off the same hymn sheet just might be the secret source to get communities and stakeholders and environmental NGOs, for example, to have a lot more trust in, in the private sector. And that in turn might lead to them supporting the politics that goes with having these long-term visions. Mm -hmm. mm, thank you. Richard, just going further into this, this cooperation between the private sector and the public sector, what is the role of public-private collaboration when tackling these challenges, in your view? Thanks, Tez. This is a, uh, a topic that I love to think and talk about and be part of, so I really welcome the question, the line following on from Chris's words there as well. For me, I think that there is a large role to play in that collaboration, and, and one of the areas, I think, is how we can help policy move from hypothesis driven considerations and policy to being research and data-based. And, you know, there's a, a meeting the minds here. We've had an evolution in technology that allows research and data gain and bringing those insights so that policy can be evidence-backed, so that there can be, you know, economic models produced based upon those, those policies and uh, the data to create more certainty and more consistency in the project landscape. But that research is a piece that you know we and others are probably taking a novel approach to, I think, as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a rapidly changing world, Tej, and you have to be quite dynamic in how you think about that. The world events over the last 12 months highlight some of the geopolitical change and challenge that is having a significant effect on people, on communities, on energy prices and availability. 
and also on some of those critical minerals and resources that Chris spoke about. I think there's a great ability for people like ourselves as consultants for governments to team with academic institutions. And that way we can bring the best of research data and commercial outcomes to underpin some of that policy change and analysis. And we've got even further, as you know, Tej, and within my business, we have our own research capability that often teams with academic institutions. And that brings a different level of advice, a different level of insight into climate change, risk, transition, public safety, security, all sorts of topics, and stimulates a greater government and private sector collaboration, and therefore investor confidence. An example of that is critical minerals. You know, that the geopolitics determines the resources available for that, where it is, but those minerals are key for not only energy transition and decarbonisation, but for general production of industry, for technology and for defence and security. So it really can enhance by that analysis and that modelling how private sector investment business cases and viability are really tied to policy and even government ideas and regulations like foreign ownership provisions can be brought in to consider this on a risk basis that really is enabled to inform and drive um, both the intent of the policy and the action that needs to come from it. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Richard. And I, I love that you touched on the, the the academic or academia connections there because that's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Chris, I mean, you're at Princeton University. What's, what's your perspective on the role of academia that Richard brought up in partnerships and collaboration around the energy transition? From the perspective of Princeton, and if I go back to our earlier conversation about workforce, we're a tiny institution. And so we aren't ever going to be the pipeline for the energy transition workforce. That's going to come from the big state universities and community colleges. So so we need to make sure this uh, this collaboration we're talking about between academia and, and government and the private sector is, is very inclusive. But at Princeton, one thing we can do is play an outsized role when it comes to influence in both public and private sector leadership circles. So... I think having spent three quarters of my career in the private sector gives me a somewhat unique perspective here. And I'll start with, I think Richard mentioned that the research we do drives important outcomes and drives important learnings for for the private sector. But frankly, from our point of view, academics, we benefit a lot from being connected with industry. It helps ground our thinking. It improves the relevance of our research. We keep up to date with what's actually happening out there on the ground versus model land. Uh, so it's it's hugely valuable from our perspective. But I think we ca- we have an important contribution to make from your perspective. And I think for a start, for the most part, we're not bound by corporate interests and competitive tensions. And so we can be an honest intermediary, if you like, for messaging and so forth between the private and public sectors. And certainly in my centre... We put a huge amount of effort and and it's quite regular that we convene industry and government leaders from different sectors and organisations to consider these challenges and explore collaborative solutions. And often competitors and clients and suppliers and so forth in the room. And we make it under the Chatham House rule so that we're trying to provide this safe space where people come together to share their experience with problems and help solve them. In turn, I think this helps us with policy recommendations. And certainly in this country, I think we are quite influential. I think many of you would be aware of our 
Net Zero America study from a couple of years back. And, you know, it had a huge level of influence and, and level of impact on both the private sector and the government. And in fact, you know, we spent a lot of time engaging with all levels of government, from the White House to the Senate to state governments to all the different agencies, in how the policy response came along. And, you know, you've seen really quite remarkable policy outcomes in, in the US. Not quite as ambitious as we would have hoped for, but still uh, a, certainly a big step forward from where we've been. I did have some of my experience as an academic in Australia, and I think that relationship is not as productive between, you know, I don't think the universities uh, have the same level of collaboration or influence with either the private sector or public sector. And I think, you know, that is an opportunity missed. But to summarise, I agree with Richard that, you know, more collaboration, and I might just qualify that by saying more authentic collaboration both within the private sector and between the private sector and academia and government would be very productive in trying to overcome some of these problems that we are talking about today. Mm, I totally agree. I think that Net Zero America's piece, Chris, that uh, we obviously took a very, very um, detailed look at was absolutely signature in establishing what the value of academia really is. I guess my hope in general is that more of the private sector takes advantage of that collaboration with academia as as an objective intermediary, as you said, because I think there's tremendous value there. And I think we need everyone thinking together in order to overcome some of the challenges that we've already mentioned. I'd like to end, uh, if possible, with, uh, with the both of you on a question that I'm asking everyone who appears on this series. This one's not specifically about supply chain and resources. Um, my question is, how can the energy transition be made more inclusive and equitable, ensuring that no one is left behind in terms of energy access, affordability, and quality? And maybe we'll start with Richard on this one. Well, thanks, Tej. And I think it's a, it's a huge topic and a really important one. As far as a just transition with energy, I don't think we can look at just the energy component alone because it's both tied, fundamentally tied to access to power and water and both equality and equity in that journey. I think the move towards greener fuels and associated changes, both demand changes um, in mining communities, employment and prosperity in some rural sectors and, and, uh, and cities. And we have to bear in mind with that that this is not a Western developed world problem, but it's a problem that exists globally. And even the APAC region where I live, there's about 70 million people that don't have regular access to power alone. And the effect that has on education, on, on equality for women and such like is, is quite significant as well. There are some lessons I think we can learn from previous changes in the energy sector. So we've seen in some communities in, say, Australia, um, the challenges that's been brought about with LNG into the dynamics of their communities from largely flying, flying worker forces. So how we build sustainable communities, I think, is really important for us to consider as we make these changes. And I think we've got to bring together, therefore, broader skill sets. So economics, social sciences, policy, regulation, engineering, industry, uh, industry stimulus. It's all going to be brought together in a holistic piece. We've spoken a bit about academics and we've spoken a bit about uh, training and, and retraining and how we produce those skilled workforces and change the workforce type as we make this transition 
that workforce transition is an important part as well, I think, to keep it going, but also to make sure that it's inclusive and equitable and doesn't create fear for communities that have a risk of being left behind. So I think we've got to have that holistic view and a long-term view. As Chris has indicated, many of these projects and these journeys are decades or multi-decades long, and we have to have that vision and that commitment and stay the task on these journeys, or if not, we'll fall short and there'll be people threatened or left behind on the journey. So thanks, Tej. Mm, thank you, Richard. It really does come back to a global and long-term view on this, doesn't it? Chris, how, how do you feel about this topic that we, we popularly call a just transition? This is a non-negotiable for me. I think if uh, we want to achieve this transition in any kind of timely frame, then it's going to have to be inclusive and it's going to have to be just and we're going to have to make sure we have a really good understanding of how people value the various things at a local level. I'm just going to refer back to the Net Zero America study momentarily because that was one of the reasons for our you know, really high level of spatial resolution because that allows us to derive sort of local impacts and local opportunities. Um, and and when, we, when it comes to just transitions and inclusivity, etc., it's all about local outcomes, right? But in terms of the bigger picture on the answer, I'm going to sound a bit uh, schizophrenic, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> if, if we want to deliver this transition in a way that assures a just and inclusive outcome with minimal impact on reliability and cost of energy services and, as Richard says, access for all along the way, then I would advocate for a slower, careful approach especially in planning and development, and focus on the delivery of meticulously planned projects, but then execute them as rapidly as possible once they're sanctioned. But we all know that this could infer a slower transition, and we know that a slow transition means we leave billions, especially billions in the global south, vulnerable to potentially even much greater harm from the impacts of climate change. Alas, I don't see a really easy answer to managing this tension between the need for speed and the need for minimising unintended consequences. But I think our best chance is with, as you say, a much longer view from governments, a much more consistent focus on the challenge ahead and a much greater level of collaboration, both between, as we said, between government and private sector, but let's not leave communities out of this uh, collaborative approach as well. Very well said, Chris. I think this very much is the wicked problem of our time, isn't it? I want to thank you both, Richard and Chris, for an absolutely wonderful discussion. I think what I've really enjoyed about this discussion is, is an unflinching view towards the challenges and a very clear articulation of what the many challenges really are. But I actually think we spent most of our time talking about how we can address them. And I think that's exactly where we need to be if we're going to get action in this space. Really, really appreciate you being with us today and, and having an absolutely fantastic discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Clarion Call. Listen to more episodes in the series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. 
to read our research report, Shocked, which unpacks opportunities to de-risk the energy transition in an era of profound uncertainty, visit shocked.ghd.com. I'm Dr. Tej Gita. Thanks for joining us.